Hello, and welcome to Title Volume, a podcast focusing on the core concepts of pediatric pulmonology by Breathe Easy Pediatrics and the Pediatric Assembly of the American Thoracic Society. My name is Ryan Thomas, and I am a pediatric pulmonologist and director of the CF Center at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Today, I bring you a conversation with Dan Craven, Moshe Prero, and Alexander Gibson on their review article, Tracheal Bronchitis in Children with Tracheostomy Tubes, an Overview of a Challenging Problem. We discuss the importance of tracheal bronchitis in this patient population, the risk factors for bacterial infection, the microbiology of the airway in these children, and the diagnosis and treatment of tracheal bronchitis in kids. I think you will find this wide-ranging conversation helpful not only in managing these infections, but in understanding the underlying physiological differences seen in this patient population. I was especially impressed by Dr. Gipsman's knowledge of the literature, Dr. Craven's insights after years of caring for these children, and Dr. Perro's excellent teaching on the physiology in children with tracheostomy tubes. So without any further delay, let's get to the show. All right. Well, I would like to start by just welcoming you all to the podcast today. Uh, thank you so much for joining in. First, I would like to introduce just so there's there's four of us today. So I, I'm Ryan Thomas. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist at Michigan State, and I'm sort of going to be the host of the podcast today. And then up first, we have Dan Craven, who is a pediatric pulmonologist and associate professor of pediatrics at the Case Western School of Medicine in Cleveland. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ryan. This is Dan. And could you tell us a little bit about your involvement in taking care of children with tracheostomies in the past? My involvement would be from a very active clinician, and we have a outpatient clinic where many of our technology-dependent children come, and so I see a lot of the patients in there. And uh, also do a lot of training with the fellows around these these patients. And then we have a large inpatient ward where there's a significant number of kids who, who spend a lot of time uh, who are ventilator dependent and have tracheostomies. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for joining us. And now uh, Moshe Prero, he's a pediatric pulmonologist and sleep medicine physician, also joining us from Case Western in Cleveland. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. And he's uh, working wounded on us today. He's getting over a little bit of a sinus thing. So we're hoping his voice will hold up for us. But if he disappears later in the, and then I guess we'll know where he went off to get some tea or something. And my interest in this topic comes from being the uh, curriculum director for the Respiratory Technology Dependent Center at Rainbow Babies and Children, where we take care of uh, many children with both non-invasive, but also invasive ventilation. Perfect. So yeah, we've got a, a good basis in physiology coming from our pulmonology and sleep team here. And then last but certainly not least, we have our lead author on the paper, Alex Gipsman. He is joining us from CHOP in Philadelphia, where he is a pediatric pulmonary fellow. Thank you for joining in. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I did my residency at Rainbow, which is where I met these guys, um, and they're a big part of what got me interested in, in pulmonology. I recently just started my pulmonary fellowship here in Philadelphia just a month and a half ago. 
All right. Well, that's always an exciting transition. And I guess it's nice to have such a useful piece of literature under, under your belt starting fellowship. I know I wish I'd done something this impressive when I started. So thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So we'll start by asking you, Alex, as the lead author, you know, why did you choose to write this review? What did you think it was going to add to the pediatric pulmonary space? Well, it all started really uh, the beginning of my intern year when one of my first rotations was on the pulmonary service. Didn't know much about pulmonology at the time. And a lot of the patients on the pulmonary service are uh, tracheostomy and or ventilator dependent. And just noticed such a wide variety of practice in regards to taking care of this very common issue of suspected respiratory tract infections in these patients. And depending on you know, who the attending was, they would sort of approach the issue differently in regards to when to obtain a trach culture, when to get an x-ray, when to treat, what type of treatment, how long to treat. And that sort of spurred me to start talking to, to Dan about it. And we're also discussing potential research, research projects in pulmonology at the time. And that sort of pushed me to take a deep dive into the literature and I realized there hadn't really been a review article that had sort of pulled everything together and, and stated all the issues in one place. And sort of the more I read about it, I just started compiling my notes and uh, ended up with this review. Well, I mean, that certainly sounds like a good way to get started on a project like this. And, you know, these reviews are incredibly useful. And I think oftentimes in, in medicine, when you see a wide variety of treatment strategies, it means there's not a consistent evidence base behind it. And so these reviews are a good place to get started. I was wondering, and, and Dan, I think you could take this one. Why is this an important topic for an as aspiring pediatric pulmonologist or a pediatric resident, someone in training? Why would they need to know about this? Well, when I uh, did fellowship like 25, 30-ish years ago, there, there were not a great number of children with tracheostomies, especially ones that were ventilator dependent. And that is just completely changed. And this is now a, a huge population of, of kids that are living with a very complex medical needs and require this tracheostomy to support respiration. And so I think, you know, there, there's now pediatric pulmonologists who, who subspecialize in this population. So it's basically just a, something that all, that all trainees are going to see a lot of, of these kids and need to be comfortable with. And then, on, on a, you know, as far as my personal experience goes, like I said, we have quite a number of, of kids that we are seeing day to day in the hospital who have tracheostomy, many of whom are ventilator dependent. And it just, uh, I don't think, you know, a shift goes by without one of the, the fellows or residents calling because one of these patients is having increased secretions or changes in respiratory status. And the question that, you know, that always jumps up is, is there an infection? So that's my point of view of why, why it's so important. One of the things that I think we see in working with these children is that they often do come in with respiratory infections, but as any child would, but what specifically puts them at risk for these kinds of respiratory infections compared to other children? Um, I think Moshe, go to you with this one. So 
the natural or physiologic defenses of the airway, both upper and lower, have defenses that protect against pathogens and infection. And when using a tracheostomy tube, you bypass a, a number of those defenses, and that could lead to increased risk. So for instance, the air is not going through the nasal passage, so you miss out the nasal hairs that filter the particles containing microbes or the turbinates, which if the particles get past the nasal hairs, they may impact on the turbinates. Uh, you also miss out on the natural humidity of the nasal cavity, which warms and humidifies the air, which has a number of defense mechanisms, including enlargement of hydrophilic particles and the increasing the water content of, of mucus. So all those are important aspects of impeding micro, uh, microbes' ability to enter the lower airway. There are some other physiologic effects as well, including with the tracheostomy tube, it reduces the ability to create adequate subglottic pressure unless uh, that could be mitigated if using a speaking valve, but without a one-way speaking valve, the cough effectiveness can be reduced as well. And then finally, you have the tracheostomy tube itself, which can cause inflammation or injury to the uh, mucosal lining of the trachea. So I think the glottis closure and its relationship to cough effectiveness might be a particularly interesting bit of physiology for trainees to think about. What role does that glottic closure play in cough effectiveness? What, what, what is that glottis closure doing that then allows the cough to be stronger, more powerful, more effective? That's a great question. And when you think about the phases of cough, typically we think about it in three phases, that inspiratory phase where you gather volume within the lungs and then closing of the glottis, which increases the intrathoracic pressure until that can be overcome, which produces sort of the, the cough phase where air is exhaled from the airway in the lungs at a high pressure, which creates a shearing force as well in a large airway. So it moves the air, the mucus off the airway and it spells it from the airway. And when you can't create that subglottic pressure, then that second part of the mechanism of cough is lacking and therefore it can result in a weak cough and weak ability of expelling mucus from the airways. Okay. And, and what is a one-way speaking valve? Just in case anyone listening maybe hasn't seen one of these. How, how does that work? The one-way speaking valve is a device which allows air on inhalation to enter in through the tracheostomy tube, but on exhalation, it does not allow air to follow through the tracheostomy tube. So there's an air column that's static within the tracheostomy tube and the air is forced up and around the tracheostomy tube through the glottic structures. Thank you. Thank you. I think that'll be really helpful to our listeners just to make sure we're all on the same page. So I think we're going to go back to Alex with the next question. Anytime there's a foreign body, you know, we have to worry about things like biofilms and certainly a lot of different respiratory infections in, in different respiratory conditions, biofilms are involved. What role do the biofilms play in, in these sort of respiratory infections in these children? Uh, yeah. So like you mentioned, you know, a plastic tube is sort of the ideal surface on which a biofilm can form. And, and biofilms uh, are these small communities of 
bacteria surrounded by an extracellular matrix that is produced by the bacteria themselves, and it, that consists of proteins, nucleic acids, polysaccharides. And the matrix serves to form a physical barrier that protects the bacteria embedded within the biofilm from both the immune system as well as from antimicrobial agents. So they can physically penetrate the matrix in order to reach the organisms. Additionally, the organisms that are sort of low-lying within the biofilm population uh, reduce their metabolic activity, and that enables them to avoid antibiotics that target metabolically active organisms. For example, aminoglycosides target ribosomal activity, and so if there's decreased metabolic activity by the bacteria, they can avoid antimicrobial agents to a certain extent. And so that enables these bacteria to avoid the immune system and treatment. And then finally, sort of the regular life cycle of these biofilm populations is that some, a subset of the population of bacteria will detach from the biofilms and that enables them to spread locally. So for example, you know, from one part of the airway to another, and a combination of these factors make it very difficult to eradicate the bacteria from the airway. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think that's a, a really clear explanation of why the biofilms are mischievous. So how about non-pulmonary risk factors for respiratory infections? Dan, how does that play a role in this? Yeah, it certainly does because many of the children that require tracheostomy tube have underlying conditions. Some of them are complex and sometimes there's multiple factors related to those that increase the chances of respiratory infection. There's patients that have neuromuscular weakness that impacts cough and airway clearance. There's patients that have underlying airway problems like dynamic airway collapse or other wise obstructed airways, and that impairs mucus clearance, which is a major defense against infection. Some of the patients have lung disease from BPD or other factors that predisposes them to infections. Some of the genetic disorders some of our patients have are associated with immune deficiencies that further predisposes them. And then we also have quite a number of patients with tracheostomy tubes that even apart from the effects of uh, the tracheostomy tube on swallowing, they, they have other issues with bulbar function and swallowing saliva and oral secretions. And so these are being aspirated on a continuous basis. GI dysmotility is also another big factor. Diffuse uh, intestinal dysmotility, esophageal dysmotility, any or all of those things really create a bad environment for getting lung infections. It's also important for our patients to have good uh, oral and dental hygiene. And sometimes because of their complex conditions, they're not able to go to the dentist as often as we'd like it. It's, it's more complicated when they need to. So that can impact things as the, the microbiology and infectious environment in the mouth then gets transmitted down into the lungs. And then another big factor, which is the COVID pandemic certainly made worse, but was all already a big problem before COVID is lack of home nursing support. And so to keep the child with a tracheostomy from getting infections requires, you know, meticulous care 
suctioning, airway clearance, administration of medications, and so forth. And without the families having enough help at home, then that also in itself, you know, is going to put them at higher risk. They're not getting their mouth suctioned, their trach suctioned, having their ventilator tubing changed or trach changes, all the care that has to go on meticulously to keep their airway from developing an infection. Lastly, I would also add that uh, it's not uncommon for many of these children to be prescribed acid suppression therapy. And there are some studies that suggest that this can increase the risk of respiratory infections as well. So that could be a factor. Well, thank you. I think that was a really nice and comprehensive summary about sort of all the factors working against us and trying to keep the respiratory system healthy in these kids. And certainly sometimes when you're trying to fix another problem, you, you know, like the reflux or something like that, you can create some downstream effects. And so just being, I think, cognizant of that, it'll be really helpful for listeners. What do we know about the microbiology of the airway in kids with tracheostomies? Um, Alex, I think we'll go to you with this one. There are a lot of organisms that are recovered from tracheal aspirate cultures. I guess we'll discuss a little later on sort of how to interpret the cultures, but um, it's pretty consistent across several studies that Pseudomonas is by far and away the most commonly recovered organism, and that in the lifetime of a person with a tracheostomy tube, nearly all of them will will have Pseudomonas grow in a a tracheal culture at some point. Other common organisms, uh, Staph aureus, both MRSA, MSSA, and then just other gram-negative bacilli such as Serecia. Also, Stenotrophomonas is commonly isolated. It's not always clear whether it's pathogenic or just a colonizer. That really goes for all of these organisms. Uh, The fact that they are recovered, as we know, doesn't necessarily mean that they're causing an active infection as opposed to just being colonized there, which I think we're going to discuss a little bit more later on. And then, you know, viral infections are, are commonly implicated in morbidity in these patients as well. Um, There's only a few small studies that I could find that address this in terms of which viruses are commonly recovered. Uh, It seems to be rhinovirus and RSV are two of the most common ones. But again, we'll we'll talk about this later on, but, you know, isolating a virus doesn't necessarily mean that there's not a bacterial infection as well. So it can be quite tricky to interpret how, how to interpret the presence of a specific organism. And Dan, you said Bob Wood had a, had a simple way of thinking about tracheostomies? Yes. I think on the pediatric lung line, somewhere along the way, Bob Wood, who's the uh, father of pediatric bronchoscopy, said that when he would talk to families about whether they should pursue having, having their child have a tracheostomy tube or not, he would, the analogy he would use to explain to them, it's like, they would have an extra nostril and he would show them a picture of a nostril and of a tracheostomy stoma without a tube in. And the picture is pretty striking when you, when you look at it. I mean, it it is an oversimplification obviously, but I do think it's a good, good analogy. And, you know, we know that our nostrils are colonized with bacteria and when we have snot coming out of our nose, we don't always culture it. And I, 
I think uh, for trainees, I can think about it the same way, you know, when there's secretions come out of the tracheostomy tube, there's always like a quick urge to send a culture. But I think, as Alex said, where there's bacteria living there all the time and there's mucus normally produced all the time, is, is that culture really going to tell us a lot similarly to would culturing the snot coming out of your nose give you a lot of information about whether you should give antibiotics or not. So I think it's a, it's a helpful an analogy to think about. Yeah. You know, I think for trainees, seeing this tracheostomy tube can be a little stressful. They're looking at it and they're worrying about what's going on and, and all of the risk factors we already talked about and being able to core to center it is like, well, think about it as another nostril. There's, there's going to be bacteria in there. There's going to be mucus in there. They're sick can help. I think, prevent a little bit of overreaction when we're thinking about treatment. So Alex, we're going to go back to you now. How do we diagnose tracheal bronchitis in these kids? We've talked a little bit about the risk factors and some of the other things, but how do we know if it's there or not when there's so many other things that could be going on? Yes, that's sort of the the big question. And because there is no, the short answer is that there's no sort of consensus definition and everyone seems to approach it differently clinically. And that has what has probably made it so hard to actually study it, because if you can't define what a bacterial you know, tracheal bronchitis is, then it's hard to, to do interventional prospective studies. There is a CDC criteria uh, in sort of their document that defines healthcare-associated infections, and that document provides these definitions more for the purpose of surveillance rather than for clinical use, but they do have a subsection that's titled lower respiratory tract infections other than pneumonia. And that would include you know, tracheitis, tracheobronchitis. And so they do have a definition, which I'll, I'll just list now. And it's helpful, I think, to use that definition as a framework to discuss all the difficulties that we encounter clinically in diagnosing a bacterial infection, which would in turn lead us to pursue antibiotic therapy. So the CDC criteria and this was uh, not specific for children. I mean, it's also not specific for children with tracheostomy tubes. It's overlaps in intubated adults as well. So you need to have both of the following. You need to have a positive lower respiratory culture, which is defined either as a certain uh, bacterial burden on quantitative culture or having a gram stain that has more than 25 polymorphonuclear neutrophils per low power field in addition to no clinical or radiographic evidence of pneumonia. So you need to have both of those, plus at least two of the following, fever, cough, new or increased sputum production, bronchi, or wheezing. And having those sort of two parts together is considered positive for tracheobronchitis using the CDC criteria. And just to sort of uh, dissect each aspect of that and the difficulties that arise in relation to children with tracheostomy tubes, you know, having no evidence of pneumonia can be difficult both logistically and clinically because a lot of times these patients will call their pulmonologist or pediatrician over the phone and, and sort of ask for guidance. And it's not easy to transport them necessarily to get a chest X-ray. So that's one sort of logistical difficulty. And then it's also difficult interpreting chest x-rays in these patients who may have, you know, abnormal chest wall configuration. They may have abnormal lung parenchyma from recurrent infections. It can be difficult to distinguish atelectasis from an infiltrate. And then, you know, auscultation 
because part of the criteria is wheezing and ronchi is even in healthy children, it's been shown in some studies to be notoriously unreliable in diagnosing pneumonia. And so all the more so in these children, it can, it can differ from moment to moment, depending on whether they were suctioned five minutes ago or whether it was an hour ago, you'll be hearing diffuse ronchi in a lot of the patients. So it's difficult to include that in the, in the definition of an active infection. And then also in terms of sputum production, that's, there isn't really a reliable objective way of measuring it. You can look at the suction canister on the wall in the hospital, but if that was sitting there for a day, it may have turned green, even if it wasn't green initially. And you know, if the patient is agitated, they may be producing more sputum. And so that's something that's difficult to you know, consistently define. In terms of the transferate itself, so both the finding of bacteria on the culture as well as the finding of neutrophils, like we mentioned before, uh, these bacteria sort of just live in the tracheostomy tube. And we recently completed a study at, at Rainbow, sort of a retrospective descriptive study uh, of children with tracheostomy tubes over an eight-year period at our institution. And we found that about 85% of children who had a suspected infection and got a culture actually had an organism grow. So, you know, before you obtain the culture, you basically know that it's going to grow something, no matter what symptoms the patient is having. And then furthermore, there's a study that details how these patients have chronic neutrophilic inflammation in their airway, and so whether or not they're sick. And so the finding of neutrophils on a gram stain is unlikely to be helpful in pointing you towards having an infection. And then all this just sort of leads us to the question of how often we should be obtaining tracheostomy tube cultures and, and how useful they are. Uh, there's a study in intubated patients, intubated children in an ICU, where they sort of just randomly obtained endotracheal tube cultures in both patients with symptoms and those without. And they found that the results of the gram stain and culture did not correlate at all with signs of infection. And so it's important just to think about that before obtaining a culture and how uh, you would use the information to guide your treatment decisions. I wanted to circle back to one of the things you said, which was that these children, their x-rays can oftentimes be abnormal. And I think that's a really important point for people just sort of getting into this is I think we've all seen kids who get admitted with chronic lung problems and it's called a pneumonia. And you look back and they have that infiltrate that's been there almost every time they have an x-ray for years and years and years. And so I just wanted to emphasize the importance of that to the listener. You know, go back and look at old x-rays, make sure that you're comparing what are chronic changes or, you know, recurrent changes. I mean, certainly some children will get recurrent atelectasis or something in the same lobe over and over and over again. And then that's useful information or may prompt further evaluation moving forward in any child, you know, not just one with tracheostomy. So I think that that was a really important point. I just want to make sure I, I circled back to that. Two more things I forgot to mention. One, obviously I haven't, haven't been a doctor for very long, but one common practice that I've seen is, is uh, people will often look at previous cultures and say, oh, they've grown X in the past. We should make sure to treat for that now. And while it's important certainly to consider what they've grown on their previous cultures, there was one study of children with tracheostomy tubes that compared sort of routine office surveillance cultures with uh, cultures in the same patients that were obtained during future hospitalization for respiratory tract infection. And they concluded that if you were to simply rely on previous cultures to treat a current infection, you would 
be ineffectively treating the patient in over 50% of the time. And so if you do think the patient clinically has an infection, it's important not simply to rely on the previous cultures, but basically to consider a very wide spectrum of organisms. And then the other thing I forgot to mention is that in terms of, you know, the variation in, in practice in, in diagnosing and triggering the treatment of an infection, there was a, a study uh, a little over 20 years ago. It was a national survey study of pediatric pulmonology centers. And no one really seemed to agree on when they were uh, deciding to treat with antibiotics. And the most commonly cited reason to go ahead and treat was the finding of neutrophils on the gram stain. And so I think that's, that can be somewhat questionable, but again, it just highlights the, the fact that everyone seems to do something a little bit differently in this regard. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've certainly noticed that too, in discussions with some of our colleagues, that there's a lot of institutional differences in the, Dan, you had something I think you wanted to add. Uh, I was just going to add that I would agree with your comments about the x-ray and how difficult it is. You know, I think a couple of things for, for trainees when they, uh, when they see that they don't see any abnormality on the chest x-ray, it tends to be sometimes, well, it's not an infection. And so I think a good way to think about that is when, you know, I, what I would ask them is when CF patients used to be in the hospital for pulmonary exacerbations, which were from increased infection and, and mucus and other factors, their chest x-rays often don't show any focal finding, but we know that there's an incredible amount of bacteria down there. And if we look down with a bronchoscope, we would see grain mucus accompanied by bacteria. So, and those are, you know, we're treating an infection with IV antibiotics with prolonged courses. So a normal chest x-ray or clear chest x-ray or stable chest x-ray certainly does not preclude a infection that needs antibiotics. And then as you were saying, like abnormalities on a chest x-ray may or may not be a sign that you do need antibiotics, but, and complicating that further, sometimes, like you said, you could see a chest x-ray, that finding is focal, but it was there a month ago and it was there a month before that. So does that mean there's something new? Maybe not, but it also, that could be an area that is repeatedly getting infected because it's an abnormal part of the lung that's predisposed for infections occurring over and over. So it's very complicated and the x-ray is not a simple way of figuring it out. Yeah. And I think it's limited to, you know, most, most respiratory conditions in children are airway problems and an x-ray is just not a very effective way of investigating airway pathology. And so Putting too much weight on the x-ray in children is probably something that's a little bit fraught and, and worth thinking about when you're ordering and interpreting the studies. And I'll also say that the idea about increased sputum is, is definitely a helpful parameter, but it, it also has its problems. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we'll be rounding and a bedside caregiver a, ner you know, a nurse or therapist will say this patient's secretions, there's a lot of secretions this morning. They're concerned that there's an infection. And then the next shift, a different person comes on and you'll, you'll circle back and ask how the secretions are. They're completely normal. And so things change off and on through the day and day to day, caregiver to caregiver, depending on how aggressive someone was when they did their airway clearance and 
things like that affect it. So that's a difficult parameter to assess as well. And the last thing I would say is just, it's just personal and anecdotal. And I, but I think this probably speaks to one of the problems with trying to create a, a standard definition is that I think that there are patients that just child to child, what they show when they have an airway infection like this is different. So the same things are happening to one child and there's no infection and then the, a different child, it's been over and over, I've seen that child need antibiotics for those same symptoms. So I think that variability also makes it difficult. Yeah, certainly. That certainly sounds difficult. So we, we've done the, that, all the difficult part. We've decided, okay, this, this child needs treatment. We're pretty sure we're dealing with a bacterial tracheobronchitis here. Moshe, how, how do we treat it? What are the different ways we can go about kind of trying to fix this problem? So in your question, you pointed out the important part is coming to the conclusion that it's a bacterial tracheobronchitis. So once you've come to that conclusion that it's a bacterial infection causing the problem, so then the treatment should be directed towards the bacteria. Now, that's a very tricky question, and we'll go into that in a little bit more detail with my colleagues. But one way of treating it is with broad systemic antibiotics. Treating with systemic antibiotics can bring with it side effects. Um, it's important to remember a lot of these patients who are treating for tracheobronchitis are still in diapers. And so if they have diarrhea as a result of treatment, that can result in skin breakdown, which can be potentially a serious issue, as well as uh, hydration um, if they're losing fluid through diarrhea and they're not necessarily in control of their own fluid intake, that can lead towards the problems such as dehydration. Additionally, some of the medications or antibiotics used have nephrotoxic or autotoxic potential, and so it's important to keep that in mind. So obviously, given those risk factors, you know, we're going to try and reserve the systemic options for more severe illness. What other options do we have, Alex, that maybe wouldn't carry the same degree of side effect? Anecdotally, uh, a lot of clinicians will use inhaled antibiotics, although I've come to realize fairly quickly that this uh, differs based on the institution that you're at. But, you know, no matter which way you give the antibiotics, perhaps one of the, one of the fear consequences is just increasing the risk of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And just to illustrate this, then in my residency, I was taking care of a patient who everyone thought had bacterial infection. And the culture grew pseudomonas, it was susceptible to cefepime. And then he was treated with cefepime. And about a month later, he had another infection. And this time the pseudomonas was resistant to cefepime. And so um, I think the team had to resort to one of the big guns like septazidine avibactam. But the selection for antibiotic resistant bacteria is uh, obviously a real concern. It can happen pretty quickly and can lead you to sort of run out of options down the road. And so whether you give antibiotics systemically or uh, topically, which is what I'll talk about now, that's always a risk. And so using inhaled antibiotics is one potential way to treat these patients, although it hasn't really been studied specifically in children with tracheostomy tubes. In the study that we just did at Rainbow, which is not published at this time, you know, we looked at eight years of use of inhaled antibiotics and sort of described how, how they were used. And at Rainbow, in an eight-year period, 
nearly 60% of the children with tracheostomy tubes who were hospitalized at the institution received at least one course of inhaled antibiotics. So it, it's definitely commonly used there. And despite the fact that it hasn't been studied, I think a lot of people are using them. So that's definitely a, an area that needs to be studied further. But delivering antibiotics topically to the airway, it can uh, decrease the risk significantly of systemic side effects. And then it also improves the concentration of drug that's delivered to the airway specifically, which is where we suspect the infection is. And the, the data on that comes from intubated adults mainly. Um, there's one study of intubated adults where they compared IV antibiotics to, uh, I think it was amicacin, IV amicacin to inhaled amicacin. And the group that received uh, inhaled amicacin had drug concentrations in their tracheal aspirates uh, more than 4,000 times the other group, which would likely enable them to overcome a lot of forms of bacterial resistance. So that's one potential advantage. However, you know, there's always the concern, is the inhaled antibiotic getting to the part of the airway where the infection is? In an airway where there's a lot of secretions, and let's say the infection is a little more distal, uh, there's no way of really knowing if the antibiotic is reaching that site. There are some animal studies that have addressed that question. There's a study of uh, intubated piglets where they infected them with E. coli pneumonia, delivered inhaled antibiotics to one group, IV antibiotics to another group, and then they, you know, they sacrificed them and looked at their lungs, and they found that the group that uh, received inhaled antibiotics actually had a lower bacterial load in the lung parenchyma and a higher drug concentration. So People often will say that inhaled antibiotics can't reach the lung parenchyma, but that's not necessarily true, and it hasn't really been studied too well in, in children. That's not to say that you know, topically administered antibiotics are without side effects. They've been shown to cause bronchospasm when they come in contact with the bronchial surface. And then in patients, specifically those with renal dysfunction, they can develop a systemic toxicity when used in high doses for long periods of time, but obviously a lot less so than when given systemically. When coming to the inhaled antibiotics, I think there's also some limitations that are outside of just sort of the medicine of it. It's acquiring them and getting them paid for. And, you know, some of these things can be expensive. Is that a limitation to utilizing these strategies? I would say that it requires expertise from the team. In, in, our, in our case, that's from one of our pulmonary nurses or discharge coordinators who understands the nuances of getting these antibiotics approved for home inhaled use and the barriers that sometimes arise from pharmacies or insurance and being able to surmount those barriers because it's definitely an issue Depending on the preparation cost, there's differences in cost, and um, sometimes that needs to be negotiated. I'll also say that some of our patients receive, in, or like as, as Alex pointed out, many of our patients do receive inhaled antibiotics when they're in the hospital, and then when they get prescribed at home, the system that we use in the hospital to administer them with kids who are on a ventilator can be tricky and you need to work with the DME company, the, equipment, the home equipment company to make sure that they've got a way to do that and, and that it won't be a way that will cause a problem with the ventilator circuit or whatnot and that it won't 
involve taking a child off the ventilator to administer them if it, if taking them off the ventilator is something they wouldn't tolerate well. Yeah, I mean, I think those are all really good points. It's not a it's not a bottle of antibiotic you just go home and take. There has to be ways to administer it properly. It can't interfere with the technology they're dependent on. You have to make sure that any nebulizers or anything being used are appropriate for that medication. I, there's just a lot that goes into this stuff, and that's why I think these programs that have developed for technology-dependent children have been so important is because you have a, a sort of a central area of expertise and people who know how to make this stuff happen because it's not, it's not easy when you're trying to do it for the first time with no experience. So Alex, I'm going to circle back to something you talked about before, which is the biofilms and the role they play in the infections. But I, I assume they must play a role in treatment or treatment difficulty or treatment response too. You know, at least theoretically, we can see how biofilms can really make treatment difficult as the bacteria are protected both physically by that extracellular matrix that they form, and then also by being able to decrease their metabolic activity and to avoid the main mechanism of action of some antimicrobial agents. I, I don't believe that specific biofilm targeted strategies have been studied in children with tracheostomy tubes. It is discussed in the, the CF literature, and it would be interesting to see some of those strategies applied to children with tracheostomy tubes uh, in studies in the future. For example, one potential strategy would be to combine antibiotics with different mechanisms of action. So there was an animal study uh, in a CF rat model where they combined inhaled tobramycin with inhaled colistin and found that either the combination of those agents was more effective than either agent alone. And the authors theorized that the reason being because tobramycin targets metabolically active bacteria. So you can attack sort of that subset of population within the biofilms causing the infection. And then colistin targets the lipopolysaccharide on the cell wall of the bacteria, which, you know, can be affected whether or not the microbe is metabolically active or not. And sort of using that two-pronged approach could potentially be helpful, although it hasn't been studied. Um, but then, you know, potentially targeting specific components of the extracellular matrix, nucleic acids are, are a big part of it. So maybe using something like Dornase to uh, break up that extracellular, uh, extracellular matrix. Uh, there's some medications that can potentially disrupt communication between the different bacteria within that biofilm. Um, so those are sort of biofilm specific targeted therapies that would be interesting to, to see studied down the road. Yeah, I think that would certainly be interesting. It would be nice to know, you know what we can do I think that's an ongoing problem in medicine is how do we treat bacteria and biofilms? And I don't know, we've made a lot of progress. I'm sure there has been some, but not that's rolled out to the, the forefront of medicine that I've seen, certainly. How about treatment duration? Do we have a sense on how long generally we would treat these kids if we are going to use an antibiotic? So, you know, because there's no uh, specific guidance on this from any uh, of the, you know, national societies, everyone probably does something a little bit differently. Just for example, in our study from Rainbow, the most common durations were either 10 or 14 days of therapy. There's some literature in uh, intubated children. Um, there's one study that showed that a treatment duration for ventilator-associated tracheitis in intubated children of seven days or more was no more effective than shorter courses of less than seven days. And then in adult patients as well, there's a similar study showing that eight days was non-inferior to 15 days. So 
again, well, none of those are specifically in children with tracheostomy tubes. The duration of therapy is not agreed upon. And like Dan was talking about earlier, it may differ from patient to patient. In a patient with a history of recurrent severe infections, you may need to treat them longer. They may have, you know, more extensive biofilms that require a longer course of therapy than patients who don't get infections that often. Um, there, one last thing, there was a recent study in pediatric pulmonology a few months ago, a retrospective study of children with tracheostomy tubes who were treated with enteral fluoroquinolones. And in that study, the median duration of therapy uh, was eight days, and it seemed to be effective in the majority of patients. So a potential ballpark of, of seven days may be reasonable, but again, it, it probably differs significantly from patient to patient. And probably with severity of illness too. Right. So we've talked a lot about sort of treating these infections, but is there anything we can do to prevent them from happening? Dan, I think we'll go to you with this one. Yeah, prevention for pediatricians first. So I think a lot of the measures that speak to prevention are things that when a child first receives a tracheostomy, that there's a, a number of care steps that need to be learned by the family and that also hopefully the home nurses are also learning these things, but that, that can be really variable as well. And so the general care measures for tracheostomy tubes revolve around maintaining the patency of the airway, obviously, is priority, but uh, many of them also serve to try to lower the chances of infection. So some of the recommendations that, and, and care guidelines and training for families, you know, are how often should a tracheostomy tube be changed? In the inpatient setting, it's usually every week or two at home that can be extended to every two to four weeks. So for a child that's having repeated infections, circling back and finding out how often are the tracheostomy tube changes happening? How, you know, how are they doing them? Is there something that's going on when they're changing them that might be causing an increased chance of infection? There's a limited number of tracheostomy tubes supplied to family at, at home. And it's quite common that families will clean the tracheostomy tube after it's changed and reuse the tube that they just removed. There's not a lot of data about how effective the, the cleaning of the tubes is, even though this is something and it's, it's being done all the time. And so it'd be nice to know more about that. There was a study that Alex found and referenced in his paper that standard cleaning procedures were not felt to be effective in eradicating bacterial biofilms. So that's a potential concern, but we don't really know for sure if this matters or not, or if there's something that if it does, then, you know, what are things that there might be a way at home for home care to, you know, get rid of the biofilm. There's uh, other basic things about respiratory infections that are, are helpful, you know, preventing the spread of viruses because many of these bacterial infections start with, first off, rhinovirus, RSV. And even though families are pretty conscientious about keeping their kids away from sick people, 
we've seen with COVID, you can have very few symptoms and still be transmitting. And that's certainly true of rhinovirus and other viruses as well. So trying to take the measures uh, to prevent transmission of viral infections that can then increase secretions and then lead to a bacterial co-infection. Cigarette smokes and irritant, we know it, it predisposes children to respiratory infections of all kinds. So having the air be f- free of smoke or other irritants in the home. We've talked about the speaking valves and how it can help promote uh, a more effective cough. And that's something to think about. If you can, anything you can do to enhance cough clearance is going to help lessen infections. So if it's a child who hasn't been able to use a speaking valve before because they didn't have enough leak or whatever other reason, then maybe now if they're starting to get infections, circle back to that and see if they can. It also helps the speaking valve also improves swallowing mechanics. So for children, they're aspirating their saliva or oral secretions. If you can use a speaking valve, that can improve their ability to do that and lessen the amount of aspiration that's going on. There was another comprehensive review of tracheostomy-associated infections in kids that actually was published a month after our paper. And in there, they have a section about prevention. And one of the things they talk about is patient positioning. So is there a way that a child should be positioned to improve airway clearance or reduce the aspiration of saliva? So patient positioning for children that can't swallow saliva at all. And we have definitely a subpopulation of those children, frequent suctioning of the mouth by the caregivers to just, so that there's less saliva going down the lungs. And then we talked about dental and oral hygiene as well. We talked about that one of the predisposing factors for these infections is if a child doesn't have good airway clearance and the cough, so are there other augmentative airway clearance measures that would be helpful. I think things like the high-frequency chest wall oscillation, IPV, we have those devices. And I think it's a a double-edged sword. It makes sense in theory. And so I think we're quick to jump to try to do things when our patients are getting infection. It does make sense to try them. Usually, but also that is going to increase the complexity of care. These devices are expensive. There's insurance issues. So I just think that, you know, we need to be rigorous in assessing whether it's making a difference when we start to use one of those devices. And we certainly need more data. That other review article that came out that reviewed the literature, they, they have a couple references about airway clearance for children with tracheostomy and the references they had eight patients in the study and it was retrospective and each child was their own control. So we, we need we need more data on that, but that certainly is something that we prescribe often. And then I guess the last thing, you know, we've talked about antibiotics and there is a little bit of small data out there about putting topical antibiotics around the tracheostomy stoma that that could be effective in preventing things, but there's been no, nothing recent that's come out about that. It's not something that we do at our center unless it looks like there's infection around the stoma. So that probably is something worth looking into then. 
We've talked about the inhaled antibiotics for treatment, but I think I'll let Alex jump in here that this you using inhaled antibiotics to prevent infections is another approach that's I think is happening more for sure at our institution. I'm not sure about other places. So Alex, you want to comment about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm yet, I'm yet I'm yet to see it here, but you know, at, at Rainbow, it's certainly common uh, in our study. The eight-year review at Rainbow, there were, I think, 130 or so courses of prophylactic inhaled antibiotics prescribed to these patients that just get recurrent infections. And, you know, some people will use it two weeks on, two weeks off, one week a month, or cycle it with two different types of antibiotics. So that certainly is something that hopefully will be studied in the future. I think currently there's uh, one case series in the literature that discusses it in this patient population. And it does, you know, certainly carry the theoretical risk of increasing antibiotic resistance. Uh, you're sort of picking the, the lesser of two evils in that case if the kid is getting recurrent infection. So hopefully something that'll be studied more in the future. I also, I think I left out mentioning a couple of other basic things. If you have a child who's getting frequent infections is look, look at the suction, how the suctioning is being done. Is there trauma happening to the respiratory epithelium that's then predisposing it to have bacteria invade. And then the last thing I would also add about is humidification of the airway to make sure that's being done adequately at home. Sometimes one reason or another, uh, a system that was being used is, you know, something went wrong with it or the child's being taken off humidification frequently. So just to, if you have a child who's having seems to be getting recurrent bacterial respiratory infections to review what the family's doing at home for, as far as humidification of the airway because a dried out respiratory epithelium is not happy and is definitely more predisposed to having infection. Well, I'd like to thank you all for this really interesting discussion. I mean, I certainly learned a lot putting this podcast together. I just kind of wanted to give each of you an opportunity to kind of talk about like key take-home points or things that, you know, you thought would be an important thing for listeners to walk away from them with. I think, Alex, maybe I'd start with you first. I would say, you know, what I learned the most about, about this topic from writing this paper is to be careful in diagnosing a bacterial infection uh, before pulling the trigger on antibiotics. Obviously, there are many cases where that's appropriate but there's a lot of nuance in interpreting a, a culture and, and when to pull that trigger. And I just hope that a somewhat agreed upon definition of bacterial tracheitis is established at some point for these patients, because I think that'll really open the floodgates for further studies in, in management that'll be really helpful to this growing, really growing population of children that, that we're all taking care of. Yeah, I mean, that would be nice. I think we've have other things like CF exacerbations and stuff like that, that we would love a uniform, consistent diagnosis that would be helpful in studying this too. So hopefully we can come up with that a little bit faster for this than we, than we did with CF exacerbations. Moshe, how about you? Do you have anything you know, you'd like to add in closing? One important aspect that this paper adds is the utility of cultures. And that's something that sort of runs counter to everything that residents learn and medical students learn uh, when thinking about an infectious disease. Often the mantra in infectious diseases 
get a sample and get a culture and treat based off of that. And I think that the point that this paper brings out for me is to really look through those cultures with a critical lens. And then not only to understand that for yourself as the attending physician, but to explain why you're doing what you're doing to the trainees. Because it's so important for them to understand that it's not that we're disregarding information. It's that we're trying to understand how accurate the information is. Because as we discussed, the treatments have side effects. They're not benign or purely benign treatments. Antibiotics have a whole host of side effects that we have to be cognizant of. And so understanding what we're treating and being able to understand it for ourselves, but also explain that to our trainees so that they understand our approach as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. Bad information is worse than no information. And once there's a culture sitting out there, it's hard for people to ignore it. And and you can see people make decisions based on that, but otherwise maybe they would not have made. So, you know, I think that's a really important point. Dan, did you have anything you want to add in conclusion? I guess just to reiterate that as pediatric pulmonologists, we're responsible for the care of a large and growing number of these children and the care that they require is is complex and infections or scenarios that mimic an infection are constantly arising and make it more difficult for families. So I, you know, I think we, we know a fair amount about this. We, we talked about, but I think we talked about even more how many areas we don't really know. And so for trainees, I think this paper and as well as the one that came out the month after point out that fellows are looking for academic projects to do during their fellowship. This is an area that's there's so many opportunities. So that, that would be my last thing to highlight. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think that that's a wonderful point. And all of us early in our career are looking for research opportunities, especially those of us in academic institutions, and just being aware of things like that and, and seeing how helpful having this sort of well-done review can be. It's good for us, and it's good for the community to have that kind of guidance. So I appreciate all of your time today, gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tidal Volume by Breathe Easy Pediatrics. If you have feedback on this episode, please feel free to reach out either on Twitter, at ATSPEDS, or to my personal Twitter handle, at MSUPEDSPOLM. We can also receive feedback via email at titlevolumeatspeds at gmail.com. We check this email periodically and should be able to either respond to any questions you have or potentially include your feedback at the end of a future episode. I really enjoyed recording this episode, even if it was one of our longer ones. I think our guests did a wonderful job of summarizing the complexity of the medical decision-making in these patients, as well as the data they used to make their treatment decisions. As mentioned in the episode, one of the things that strikes me about this topic is the variability of the treatment regimens used at different institutions. One of our reviewers mentioned using Ciprodex drops after we'd recorded, which is something I'd not used before, but I think is an interesting treatment consideration. 
I think this episode did a good job raising questions that we need answers to, which may prove as inspiration for future research in this area. Thanks again for listening in.